0: On today's episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Imam Chad Earle, who is the Director of Religious and Youth Affairs of the Islamic Center of Maryland. He will be sharing his faith journey with us and answering questions about what Muslims believe and how it affects their life. We will also be discussing current political events and how they are affecting Muslims around the world. As-salamu alaykum, Imam Earl. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Wa alaikum
1: salam. Happy to be here.
0: So, how long have you been practicing Islam, and in what ways has your faith affected your life?
1: That's a wonderful question. Uh, I actually became Muslim in 1995. This Ramadan uh, will be my 26th Ramadan practicing, and you know, obviously, Islam has changed everything in, in my in my life, my whole identity, my whole worldview, you know, um, I'm from a small town in Indiana, simple, you know, lower middle-class family, a family that was, was from a part of the state which wasn't very diverse. You know, I, I didn't actually meet a Muslim until I was maybe 12 or 13. I think it was the first time I actually met someone that was Muslim. And I had actually never heard about Islam until reading uh, about Malcolm X. Did I understand that he was a Muslim and that there was this other religion called Islam? that was practiced by millions of people around the world. So that was actually my, my intro into the, the topic, so to speak. But yeah, that changed, you know, my whole, my whole life changed. In my 20s, I went to Egypt uh, to learn Arabic and, and study Islam um, more in depth. And that took that me on a longer journey, finally, you know, studying Islam academically and, uh, and getting into this field of, you know, working in, in, in the Muslim community as a religious leader.
0: I think that's really interesting how you were introduced to Islam through Malcolm X. I was actually introduced through Muhammad Ali, who was a close friend of X's. Mm -hmm. And before uh, both of them converted, they had different names. So Mm -hmm. when people convert to Islam, they usually change their name. Could you Mm -hmm. explain to our audience uh, why this is significant and the reason why Muslims do this?
1: So it's interesting, if you notice, Chad Earl doesn't sound very Islamic, right? It's not, it's not Muhammad, it's not Ali, right? Uh, so I actually did not change my name, um, and I kind of went the alternative route. Uh, so the religion doesn't have, we don't have, you know, something firmly established that when someone enters Islam, they'll take a new name. It's not really something that's, that was established in the religion from, you know, from the beginning. Uh, Prophet Muhammad... Used to be upon him except you know when he received the revelation and he started calling people to this religion uh almost almost always they kept their they kept their names um, sometimes he would give them nicknames and they would prefer that nickname because of their love for him uh, you know his role in the religion is very significant and uh, and the love that we have for him is more than our own selves you know to be fair uh, so, when, when he would give someone a nickname, they would just love that there that 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 was a nickname that he gave them and they would be called that. Uh, and occasionally, he would change people's names if their names had some sort of negative connotation. You know, Islam is a monotheistic religion, we don't worship, we don't believe in the worship of other deities. And at that time, there were, there were people who were called, the, for example, Abdu Shams, which, which would be the slave or the worshipper of the sun. Okay, so we, 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 would, we would have a problem with that theologically that we don't worship the sun. The sun is a created thing. So the uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would, would change their names in that case. He would give them some other name. There was a, an example where a woman's name uh, was ugly. The, her name actually meant linguistically, her name meant ugly. So he Oh said, my no, goodness, that's terrible. Yes. <laughs> so, he, so he said, no, you're, you're Jamila and Jamila is beautiful. And it's not ugly. So he would, he would always change names that had, had a negative connotation to something more positive. But other than that, we don't have uh, something that, you know, you're, you're becoming a Muslim would dictate that you dictate that you would take a new name. Now, to, to your question, you know, to the two examples that you mentioned, uh, Brother Malcolm and uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, they rest in peace. Both of them entered into Islam through the Nation of Islam. In the Nation of Islam, you know, with all due respect to their practitioners, w- w- would, we would not define them as, as uh, within the fold of orthodoxy, you know. Uh, their, their beliefs and their, their tenets of faith are definitely outside of what we would understand as Islam. Uh, you know, they had a certain practice, you know, related to the African-American experience of, of having their names stolen from them and, and having their names lost. Uh, historically and having being being named after the whoever owned their families last in slavery was you know smith or johnson or etc you know that was that was their last name and wanting to get rid of that and at least you know that was the 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 idea of x was well we don't know what our names are we you you stole our names from us you stole our tribes you stole our languages you stole our ethnicities etc so we're going to put the x to symbolize this unknown that was taken away from us um, which is it was a really beautiful like symbol as a symbol like to reject you know that history and or to, to reject being identified by that history or, or through that history. And then there were some exceptions like Muhammad Ali who were actually given inside that movement were actually given quote unquote Muslim names names like Muhammad and Ali. But that was very uh, very rare that that would happen. As a practice, it's not something which the religion dictates. And I had issues on a personal level, I had issues on from the opposite side, if someone names their child, um, Joseph or, you know, Jeffrey or any, any name, and the name doesn't have anything, any sort of intrinsic, you know, negativity to it bad meaning or bad, you know, root or, you know, maybe an example would be like if someone named their child Adolf. Well, Adolf has a historical negative connotation, right? Maybe there are people who still name their children Ada. I don't know. Maybe they are. But that would have a negative connotation. Right? In that case, I would be maybe encouraged to take a different name. But I didn't like the idea of a couple of things. One, one, creating more problems with my family than, than there needed to be related to my conversion. And this idea of me having to reject uh, the name which they gave me. My, for example, my parents, my mother gave me a name. So I have to tell her, no, no, that's not my name. I don't like this name. I'm choosing this other name. You have to call me by this other name. I don't, you know, uh, and that, it was an unnecessary step to have. And it, and it felt like it was something that would just cause more division. It's almost literally like a, a rejection of everything you, you gave me. Starting with my name, I have to reject you. The religion you gave me, I'm rejecting it. I am choosing another faith. The name you gave me, you know, so many, there's so many layers to that. And I, I try to, uh, to limit that as much as possible.
0: Thank you for clearing that up. I feel like that's a a common misconception people have just because a lot of uh, well-known Muslims like uh, Yusuf Islam or Mm -hmm. Shuhada Davi change their names after conversion. But again, not all people who convert to Islam will do that. And Mm -hmm. from what I'm getting from you, for the people who make that decision, it has more to do with their identity and creating a new and better version of themselves.
1: Mm -hmm some people, to be honest with you, some people don't know don't know you know when they're entering into the religion, they don't they don't know what's what they should do. They're 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 like yeah, I believe this is true, but they don't really know all the ins and outs. And then it is it it is and it has kind of become custom. Oh, you know, oh like maybe the mass majority of converts seem to take a new name, even if not legally, they'll take a new name when they're around other Muslims. Like oh, call call me Ahmed or call me something, right? Uh, so it's kind of customary. So that's even the Muslim community seems to kind of uh, push that onto converts or kind of give them that when they're. And that happened to me that you know people would want to call me Abdullah, which means the uh, the, the slave of Allah. You know we, you know we believe in us you know theologically that we are we belong to Allah. We are His creation. We belong to Him, uh, and as such we are His slaves in the sense of He is our Lord, right? So someone you know they would try to push that on me as. You know, hey Abdullah, how's it going? You know, and, and, you know, you have to kind of stand your ground and and, and be firm in what you want and how you, you want to move into this new experience of practicing in the religion. I, I think the problem, and you kind of alluded to, the, to that, some of the problematic aspects of, of a name change is that people almost get split personalities. It's like, oh, that person I was before I converted is someone else. No, you're still the same you. You're just maybe a better version of you. And Islam's not trying to, give you some sort of alter ego but to uplift who you are as a person you know the same person who studied islam who had questions and were, was intrigued and wanted to ask questions and go visit a visited a mosque and you did all these things before you were a muslim until you accepted the religion that's the same person right and you're just you know hopefully becoming a better version of yourself so unfortunately that the name change sometimes gives people this like, like you know they kind of think of themselves as like that's someone else i'm not that person anymore we would say no you you are thank god you are that person and that person is a better for, a version of themselves and and that's what islam's trying to do to refine people not to um, again give them some sort of alter ego or anything like that
0: yes so Uh, In recent political affairs, President Biden reversed a travel ban that was issued by former President Donald Trump, and Mm -hmm. many politicians and activists denounced this ban for being biased toward countries with large Islamic populations and dubbed it a Muslim ban. So as a Muslim, do you feel that there were anti-Islamic sentiments behind this ban, and what would its reversal mean for Muslims worldwide?
1: Uh, yes, uh, the, the short answer is yes, it definitely. I mean, because the ban was preceded by an announcement of the intention to ban Muslims, it wasn't because, you know, it wasn't because, like, you know, uh, some accidental, oh, they just happen to be all Muslim countries or Muslim majority countries. The ruling was preceded during the campaign by a, a pledge to ban Muslims from entering the country until we figure out what's going on, right, quote unquote. Right? So, you know, that of course, we were, we're going to feel that's the case. And, you know, we're definitely happy that that was revoked. It's it's interesting. I mean, it almost felt like a dream. It almost felt like when you saw that on television, that this was, this is not actually happening. Like someone running for president would, as part of his campaign, you know, pledge to ban one religious group from entering the country. It wasn't the day after nine eleven. you know, it wasn't the day, you know, it wasn't. 20 years later, how many, like, you're telling, you're saying you want to ban Muslims from, from entering the country, you know. So, yeah, I definitely felt, it felt targeted, you know, and I, I would assume it would, you know, it, it was targeted. Uh, and, you know, God knows the, the hearts of, of people better than we do. But but in terms of how we, how the Muslim, you know, the Muslim world or Muslims around the world will handle the news and how they will maybe even look at America as, as a country now and a place that they might want to go to study or, or to you know to raise a family or, or things like that I mean the reversal definitely helped but it's still I think it's still going to be an open wound for a lot of people there are many people from many different countries who were actually literally stopped at the airports they had their visas and they had the student visas and some of them had been doing like PhDs and masters and you know they would go home for for summer vacation and come back and they were denied entry you know, there were some really interesting uh and and sad stories that people were you know stopped from finishing their phd and and you know a lot of them really important you know scientific fields and and i think as a country i, I think it hurts us more than it, than it does just those individuals because our leading scientists our leading uh, mathematicians or you know so many of them are, are are immigrants and you know that's not a bad thing that's a good thing that's one of the things that we're proud of as, as americans that we're able to to bring people in, and not only bring them in and benefit from their skills, but welcome them into the country as as new Americans, as part of this fabric of, of this nation, and just the whole the whole subject of you know of America now for a lot of people, it's like oh let me let me go to Canada, let me see if I can find something in Canada or Australia or the UK, or it's really you know I mean they're looking at alternatives before they come to the United States first. And we're not, again. I'm not talking about refugees or, or people that are just coming to because they need something. I'm talking about you know the, the best and brightest around the world. They used to come here to to get their PhDs and to to study medicine and to stu- do these do this research. And that's that's a loss for us and our community as well. So yeah, I think it's something that's going to take a long time to get over. And I think it actually might not be one election cycle. It might be a quite. It might be a decade or two that we see. How is American foreign policy, as it, as it relates to the Muslim world, as it relates to immigration in general? Is is it you know are, is Biden in for four years and then Trump's back, or someone like Trump is back in? And you know is this a recurring issue? And so that's definitely gonna you know be on a lot of people's mind in the next in the next election cycle, and then in the in the coming uh, decades. And I, unfortunately, um, you know the average American really doesn't know the immigration process, even as it was before that happened. And, and, you know, anyone coming to America, you know, goes through a, a, you know, a rigorous process of, of, of vetting. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, steps that are taken to make sure people come in that, that are safe and are not at all threatening to the United States. So uh, I myself, went, while living in Egypt, I, I got married and uh, my wife is Egyptian. And, uh, you know, it took us mi- se- several years just to get her the visa to come here that was after being married for many years and having kids and the government knowing that we were married and we have kids and ev- everything sort of on the record during the, pro- the process of you know getting our children's citizenship and everything like they know who we are you know as a family they know that you know but still it's it's not a it's not a short process so the idea that you know we would need even more extreme vetting and more you know extreme measures and just, just shutting the door in people's faces like i said literally people were sent back on the next plane out, they were lay, landed in the airport and they were denied entry. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine what that would feel like, you know, to, to travel from, you know, I, I know flights from the Middle East and from North Africa, they're very long. Imagine you're spending 24 hours on, on a flight to come, you know, finish your, your PhD work after summer vacation and you land exhausted to be told that you have to get on the next plane going home because you're denied entry, you know, like it's, it's tragic. It was really, really tragic. So. And I know some of those people have, uh, you know, their are, their are institutions and you know legal funds and that sort of thing that are working to try to correct some of those wrongs and get those people, um, you know, give them permission to come back in and finish their studies and also to take that off their record because if you're ever denied a visa. Uh, for any reason that's, that's on record, you know. And so if you were to apply for another one, they ask you, have you ever been denied a visa before? Or, or have you ever been denied entry into the United States? And you'll have to say yes. And that will obviously um, that will affect your ability to re-enter if you've been denied for some reason, right? So they're trying, you know, there are institutions and, and uh, um, you know, legal, legal support that are trying to, to right some of those wrongs, but it's, it's very tragic, yes.
0: I'm really sorry that you had to experience that. And I know I, I can't even imagine what that would be like, but I hope that you're all doing better and that you're in a better place now than you were back then. What are some ways that people could combat anti-Islamic sentiments in, in their life?
1: So I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think for a lot of people, like i said i i had never met a uh, muslim until i was you know 13 or so 12 or 13 and you know i was i was a weird kid maybe like i, I don't know i was into like hip hop and like no one around everyone everyone around me was listening to like country music and 80s rock and roll bands and like <laughs> like hairspray like uh, you know but uh, i don't know i like that i mean i was different you know, maybe i was you know exposed in a way that was that was uh, different than a lot of people but I think the, the reason I'm saying this is because I think there's a lot of Americans that are that are just they don't know any Muslims they never they are from these places in the country that are just very vanilla for lack of a better word right very things that you know places in the world which are just very one you know one thing you know just kind of you know in the rural areas that don't have a lot of diversity either ethnic racial you know whatever religious so i think that's going to be a challenge for for a lot of those people for a long time and their experience has been since 9/11 islam is this unfortunately islam was the introduction for so many people to uh, 9/11 was the introduction uh, to islam for a lot of people and it, that's that's the you know that's what we're one of the victims of of that terrorist attack because we we have to work against that for decades and decades and decades to try to remove that you know that evil that was done and uh, it's not easy it's not easy and I think if you don't know Muslims and you haven't been around people and got, gotten comfortable with with being around people that are different than you, whether it's Muslims or other people, if you can just be around people that are different and look look at the world differently uh, and still sit and have a conversation and, and you know if, you, if you're not used to that it's going to be a struggle and you know I think there are there are still millions literally millions of people in the country that have you know that sort of uh, perspective at, at this moment, or they've just been they 've heard so much. You know, from the other side so much you know, islam is evil you know there are so many books that have been written about islam um and unfortunately those are v- very common to find in public libraries and and even in bookstores like you know major bookstores that paint islam as and, and muslim specifically as uh, you know the hidden enemy the enemy within and that sort of thing and so if someone if somebody reads those and again those are sometimes best sellers those kind of works are are, are out there in the marketplace so if you read a book like that, even if you have a Muslim neighbor, you, you might just be looking at him through one eye, like, like who's this, you know? Yeah, he, he's nice now. Yeah, he, he, uh, he shoveled my driveway today, but, you know, I'm just waiting because he's, he's plotting something, you know? So, uh, you know, we have, a lot, we have a lot to work against and our work, you know, to, to counter uh, in terms of ideas, but the best way we can do that is just being, being who we are, trying to be the best Muslims we can be. Uh, which which you know Islam calls us to be good good neighbors you know to be uh, good good citizens um, and wish the best for each other which, which wish the best for you know you know our our fellow countrymen and women and I think that's that's the only thing we can do at this point besides you know some of the the things like even this program and this is a wonderful opportunity to sit and dis- discuss topics and there are people with open minds that will listen but. We hope even people maybe with a little bit, you know, whose minds are not so open, maybe they'll get a chance to listen one day and this will benefit them in some way.
0: Thank you for that. And that is what I, I try to do with my show anyway. I just feel like if people would just sit down and talk to each other for just a few minutes, they would realize how ridiculous it is to be afraid of someone just because they're different from you and that we have we all have differences but it's okay and we have more in common than we do different so why shouldn't we be friends you know like why can't we all coexist together
1: absolutely absolutely I mean especially you know given you know the the nature of our society that we're you know this is what we're founded on that we can all uh, despite diversity we can unite and, and build a you know, prosperous nation that you know, everyone can succeed in and find happiness and it sounds so simple right it's like why, why do we even have to talk about it right? but um, for a lot of people it's it's a challenge like oh you, it's my way or the highway you're doing it wrong you're not doing it, you know everything what you believe is wrong your your belief is evil and this and that so it's a challenge
0: no, I, I appreciate that. I did grow up hearing a lot of those sort of anti Arab, anti Islamic little quips from people around me. But at the same time, I feel like I was really privileged because uh, my grandfather was actually uh, very close to a Saudi Arabian family and they were all Muslims. And he was traveling back in the day as a doctor and he treated. The father and after that they basically became best friends and so my father and all of his siblings they would regularly go over and visit them and they would go all the way to Saudi Arabia and we have we still have a lot of gifts from Mm. them like just really cool pieces of Arabic art and calligraphy and you know nowadays things are a lot different just with Mm. the tensions and relationship in general but you know again and I grew up hearing this and I grew up hearing stories about them so whenever like an adult authority figure would say oh I think that woman wearing a hijab is hiding something under there and I just look at her and say her hair because there's a picture (laughs) of my dad right next to one of his daughters and she's just smiling and wearing a hijab too and I'm just like that's not threatening at all like literally she's a doctor her job is to save people's lives
1: mm. I mean unfortunately like I said well, um, so many people will not have that experience of having you know, having that sort of friendship and, and and meeting someone from another part of the world and building such a friendship that you would go to their land and visit them there and I mean that's that's really beautiful I mean unfortunately that's very rare but you know I have friends it's interesting I had a friend uh, an old, old high school friend that we keep in touch on social media and, he reached out he's like hey what's going on are you still in egypt i'm like no i'm you know i've, I've been back for a few years now and he said oh, okay well, I'm, I'm planning to go once once uh you know travel restrictions let up and it's safe to travel i want to take my son his son's you know around 12 years old he said i want to take my son to egypt and visit visit the sites there i'm really excited and i was hoping you'd be there when we got there and i said well, just let me know when you want to plan it and everything and I'll, I'll i'll do what i can for my side to make your trip you know the as enjoyable as possible. But th- you have those experiences when you have, you know, friendships that that mean something and those connections, you know, people want to, you know, uh, it encourages people to to bridge the gap, so to speak. You know, you, you can go to a lot of places on vacation and Egypt's one of them, but, you know, maybe, maybe knowing that I was there with, and having that friend there and having that connection with someone there uh, would you know tip the scales to let's let's p- pick Egypt over uh, over Paris or something like that? You know, so uh, that's really important. But unfortunately, as again, so many people have will not have that experience. Um, maybe in the short term, I right? you know, times are changing. Uh, even those places in, in the country are becoming more diverse. You know, rural America is becoming more diverse. Um, it's not uncommon to find uh, very small towns in in Middle America where there are significant Hispanic populations or even, you know, what's that you know, East African, like Somalian populations and working in factories and, and uh, different things like that. So, uh, you know, the times are changing, but, you know, um, it takes something in, in the heart to want to wanna, to to want be willing to say that this, you know, this relationship is valuable to make a connection with someone that's different than you and, and want to, re- re- you know, re- Uh, retain that that friendship or build that friendship over time you know it takes it takes a a certain change of heart or not even a change of heart but it takes something that you know an an engagement that comes from the heart to want to learn about other people I hope more people will do that I hope more more people will make those kind of friendships
0: I hope so as as well and I, I couldn't agree more with you on that one and also it would, I would definitely choose Egypt over France. I mean, literally, <laughs> these structures that are so impressive that you have a bunch of people saying, you know what, I think aliens made that. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I'm pretty sure those were Egyptians. It's like, I don't know, man, It's pretty impressive. Like, no one said that about the Eiffel Tower. Nobody said it was made by aliens. It, they can't compete. Plus, the French people don't, don't put seasoning on food. We don't want
1: to. You don't want to insult your French listeners. No, I'm you know? sorry. I mean, okay. the Muslim world. We, the Muslim world, we have a. You know, we have a interesting history with the French people. You know, I've been to France uh, a few times, and uh, there's a lot of beautiful things in their culture, but there's a lot of historical things that have have also soured the relationship between Absolutely a lot of Mus- like Muslims and the French. Absolutely, like the occupations
0: you know? of uh, Morocco or uh, Algeria.
1: Algeria, yeah. but at the end of the day, we're all. we you know. these these are you know the average french person that you know lived in a small town raising his family farming or he he didn't make the decisions you know 100 years ago or 200 years ago about what his government did and what his just like us you know you know i Mm -hmm. I met a lot of people in my time overseas that they occasionally would mix you know american foreign policy and americans and and we had to remind them that they're not the same thing you know the average american even though we live in a democracy and we do elect our leaders, we don't really have the kind of say that, that a lot of people think we do in terms of how foreign policy is, is established and implemented. And, but I also met a lot of people who are very nuanced and they understood. that, like, no, we like Americans. We just don't like American foreign policy. We don't like the wars and the bombings and this thing and this thing. But you're just one person and you're not re- responsible for all that. So, you know, we have to, we'll give the same respect to our.
0: That's a very good point, and that ties to my uh, next question. So, of course, there's the coronavirus, and people are quarantined and unable to travel, but an important part of Muslim life is the hajj, or the Mm -hmm. pilgrimage to Mecca. So, why is this pilgrimage so meaningful to practitioners of Islam, and what is it that they learn through the hajj?
1: So, that's a really beautiful question. I mean, I unfortunately have not made the hajj yet, and, and it was something... Um, last year, you know, before the pandemic, I was thinking maybe 2021, you know, um, you know, there is a financial cross to everything, but I was thinking hopefully maybe by 2021, I could finally um, fulfill that requirement. Um, one of the reasons it's so significant is because it is the fifth of the five pillars. And for a lot of us, you know, we were able to get three out of four or three out of five or four out of five. And, you know, getting that last one—it's just like it's one of those things that people dream about. Uh, and historically, I mean, we have to think about—you know—a lot of Muslims. I mean, we we live in we live in a world with history, and we live in we live in societies and nations that have a, a lived experience with Islam uh, for many centuries. And historically, the Hajj was a very significant um, endeavor. It was something that people would save up, you know years and years of their lives maybe that was their you know life savings that they would spend to go to Hajj and you know, if you're tra- traveling from someplace like India or Pakistan or from Morocco or from Senegal to to Mecca on on camel or, or by ship or it, it was a significant journey you know people would leave their homes uh, not necessarily expecting to return because you know people even people felt, felt ill and you know they were they, you know they boats would would ship and you know, would sink at sea and it wasn't something that you were guaranteed to, to to return from you know so it had that significance of undertaking this you know then again solely as a form of worship to god undertaking this once in a lifetime journey uh to go to visit his house i mean i mean we don't believe god lives in 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 the kaaba but we call we we call it the house you know the, we call the the mosque and places of worship houses of god I right? um so you know taking you know taking you know taking on that responsibility just as a manifestation of our faith and love of our creator and and, and our faith in him and wanting to fulfill that uh, that that right and 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 we believe you know theologically that that god is inviting you know the pilgrims are called the the guest the guest of god you know so it, it it is this idea that you know we're being not just being commanded to make the hajj and you know, like it's some sort of requirement but that we're being invited, you know, and, and when we're able to fulfill that, we're only able to fulfill that because Allah brought us there. God brought us there, right? So it has that sort of spiritual connection as well. Um, but for a lot of people, it was such a it was such a big journey that it was, you know, it took on such a significance that people the people that returned, you know, that, that oh, this man is a haji. You know, he went to the Hajj. That was, you know, it's not something that everyone could do nowadays. You know, it's a little bit easier. You book, your, you book your first class ticket and you stay in your five-star hotel and you, you have the open buffet and there's a lot of amenities, you know, that are provided for people in, during the pilgrimage. And that, those are not necessarily bad things. We're not meant to uh, necessarily suffer to the point of, you know, harming ourselves during the journey, but the journey itself had those sort of hardships, you know, built in. But... Um, but that, you know, again, historically, people had that connection. Oh, this is the Hajj. I'm going to make the. I'm saving up for the Hajj, um, and and it was just this, this spiritual connection of you know, and if you think about Mecca, I mean, Mecca is a really interesting place, you know, geographically. You know, there's not much there. Uh, historically, you know, there weren't trees. There were, there were no rivers. There's one well, the Zamzam, which provides the fresh water for the for the the town. But it's a mountainous, extremely hot location. And you just think about, you know, people are going there from all around the world just for God. It's not for shopping. It's not for, it's just for this religious experience, right? And if if it weren't for Islam, who would, you know, if it weren't for the religious aspect of it, the spiritual aspect of it, who would do that? Who would go to that place and just just stay there for like a week? I mean, um, you know, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a really interesting human phenomenon of, of going to this place solely for the worship of God, and as we said, uh, answering the call, answering the invitation, we would say uh, of God to come and worship Him in that special place. Uh, and again, it is the fifth of the five, of the of the five pillars. And it's interesting because you know all the other four, four pillars are things which are required multiple times, uh, almost without exception. You know, the declaration of faith, obviously. Is 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 required to utter it once, you know, but it's something which is meant to be uttered all the time and believed in, and be a consistent, you know, source of faith. Um, but then the prayers, you know, are five times a day. Ramadan is once a year. Uh, paying the zakat, which is the obligatory uh, amount that we should give from our wealth for, uh, to give to the needy, that's that's due once a year for people who who are uh, obligated to pay that. But the hajj is not, even though the hajj ceremony is done once a year, it's not an obligation once a year. It's it's an, it's an obligation for those who are able to do it even just once in their lifetime. I mean, for a lot of people, it is It is the once in a lifetime journey that they might make. And in terms of the sheer numbers, you know, I don't know how, how historical that is, but I think in terms of sheer numbers, most Muslims will not make the hajj. And that's also why it's more sig- significant, because you're like, you feel like this, you're, if you're able to do it, then you're one of those you know, chosen that, you know, some, someone who's been blessed with that opportunity. But, you know, I did, I did the quick math, you know, I mean, if we say 1.5 billion Muslims, I've heard higher numbers, I've heard lower numbers. Um, and around 3 million people make the Hajj every year. Well, in a century, that's 300 million out of 1.5 billion. So there's still a minority of people that are making, that will be able to make the Hajj in their lifetime so that it's it is that, that from for, from a spiritual perspective it's this significant event life changing event that's only possible with god 's permission we, we don 't believe that we we, we actually have uh, you know theologically speaking we don 't believe that we have power to do anything except if Allah wills that this like he gives us that power so to speak or he manifests that for us so we we, we do our best we go to work we we have our savings account but when you actually get there and it's all said and done, you know that it was only with God's help that you were able to do that, right? So it's very significant. And then the rituals there are very unique, um, you know, walking around the Kaaba uh, that you've probably seen in videos, it's quite famous, The watching the pilgrims uh, circulate or around, around the, the Kaaba. Um, you know, and we have special prayers that are done there and special rituals that are done there. So it's a very unique from start start to end. It's a very, very unique experience that we don't replicate in any way. Uh, you know, those sort of rituals we do, are not replicated outside of the, the Hajj itself.
0: That's very true. And a lot of times it gets sort of depicted as being like a, a vacation or something, but it, it's not. It's a serious, it's a serious, uh, it's a serious uh, journey. <laughs> it's
1: not a big. Vac- I mean... If people take their vacation days, maybe to go to Hajj you know, in the West, they'll take days off to go to Hajj. But no, it's not a vacation, no. And, you know, usually people, when they, before they go, they start walking. You know, they walk five kilometers a day. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll try to do some sort of exercise um, to, to build up their leg muscles and, and get used to the physical strain on the body because there's a lot of walking there. Even though there, there are buses and, and and those services there for the, to- for the uh, pilgrims, a lot of times, the, the traffic is. All people say, "Let's just walk. It's, it'll be faster to walk, and they'll just walk the whole thing." Um, so it can be very strenuous, and especially if, you know, according to the time of year, um, which maybe your listeners, I don't know if they know that, you know, the Islamic calendar is also twelve months, but it's based on the lunar, uh, the lunar calendar, which is shorter than the Gregorian calendar. So what happens is Ramadan, actually, uh, and all the other months will actually shift. little bit every year almost two weeks about 12 days 11 12 days if i remember correctly um but what what happens is that goes year after year until Ramadan's not in the summer anymore it's oh it's actually in springtime and then it's not in springtime anymore it's in it's in the winter and the hajj Hajj ritual uh, the hajj uh, ceremony or or experience is the same is the same way sometimes hajj will be in the winter time and sometimes Hajj will be in the summer. Like right now, it's kind of dead summer. So if someone's going now to the the Hajj this year, uh, even with all the modern amenities that they have, it's still gonna be a a challenge. You're talking about 110, 120 degree heat, maybe more than that. Um, um, And walking, you know, miles a day sometimes, and it can be very difficult. And even just the stress, you know, there's one of the rituals of Hajj is that or the the requirements of Hajj is that you don't get angry and you don't and you keep a certain demeanor during the whole experience. So if you're if you're sitting in traffic for five hours to go from point A to point B, which is only supposed to be a five-minute drive, you just have to be very very calm with the whole thing. You know, so it's a test. You know, it's a test. Uh, you know, it's not a vacation in any, in any way, um, but it's one of those tests that you wish for, and you and you and you realize how how it's changed you and. I, I very rarely meet people who come back from Hajj as they were before they went to Hajj. There's something that's changed in them. Maybe their outlook, maybe their appreciation of their blessings that God gave them, or something's changed, and they're not the same people.
0: So the five pillars of Islam are faith, prayer, alms, pilgrimage, and fasting. What do they mean to you as a Muslim?
1: Uh, yeah, the five pillars, you know, really anchor the Muslim. Uh, they really anchor us to our religion, and, you know, as I said, you know, the first pillar, which is faith, or or declaring, acknowledging that there's only one God and that the Prophet Muhammad is His messenger. Peace be upon him. Um, you know, that's kind of the starting point that would quote unquote identify someone as a, as a Muslim, right? Um, and that, again, we we might say at one time or declare at one time, but it's something which we're always you know we're saying multiple times in the day it's it's a form of worship that we do uh, like other faiths you know they have different um, litanies that you might recite uh, as prayers either to yourself or in, in different ceremonies like like the Catholics will say, do the hail marys and uh, you know the lord's prayer and these these sorts of things for us some of those some of those examples are for example the shahadatain saying there's only, you know, declaring there's only one God and and Prophet Muhammad is his messenger. That in in itself is a litany, uh, you know, something uh, uh, that would be repeated multiple times in the day. Uh, And then the prayers really, you know, are are a wonderful interruption of of, uh, our day-to-day life and and force us to really stop what we're doing. Not that that our day-to-day life isn't important because we all have to make a living, we have to feed our families and everything, but there's there's important and there's more important, right, and and the wise person will know what, when and what to prioritize, right, so for us, you know, the, the command to stop what we're doing and, and say these prayers throughout the day is really a nice interruption and a reminder for us to not forget why we're here, you know, we believe theologically that we're here, humanity is here for a reason, we're not here just to live as animals and eat and drink and procreate and and then pass away. We're here for something, of maybe a higher nature, or a spiritual nature. Uh, so it's a it's a reminder of that reality uh, to turn back to our Creator and and remember Him. Uh, and then the other other rituals, you know, fasting, you know, Ramadan. You know, we have other fasts outside of Ramadan, but the Ramadan fast is very uh, is very special to us, in the sense that. It is, it is also kind of this yearly interruption and, and a chance to slow down and reconnect. And a lot of people refer, you know, refer to it as charging as we charge our cell phones, or charge our batteries that we're able to unplug from kind of worldly focus and, and turn back to our creator. Uh, besides the fast, Ramadan is really about the, the Quran and, and connecting to the Quran as, as a book, uh, reciting it. A lot of people re- recite the Quran cover to cover uh in the in in the month and it will be read in prayers at night uh throughout the month usually uh cover to cover so uh, and that was uh, that was a practice uh that reconnection with the quran was a practice that the prophet muhammad himself led that example we, we learned from him uh it, it's in our tradition we know that the angel gabriel would come to the prophet every year peace be upon him and and recite what had been revealed of the quran up until that point uh, in Ramadan and kind of re- like use that opportunity to revise uh, uh, written down uh, as as words and then he gave it to the people and then eventually they, they would write that down uh, so the angel would come angel Gabriel would come and revise that uh, with him and it's mentioned during the last year of his life they actually revised the whole thing twice so he understood that that was a sign that he might not live another year that that it was that it was uh, an intense focus on and revising it twice and making sure that everything is, was as, as it should be, so to speak. And, and there, there are many people, you know, I'd million, say millions of people around the world who have memorized the Qur'an cover to cover. Fortunately, I'm not one of them, uh, to be fair. But w- when they do that, they go through a, a lifelong process afterwards of having to revise and refresh. And you know, re-read and re-recite and make sure that nothing was forgotten or misplaced or misquoted or anything like that. There's the fourth pillar, which is the zakat, which is an obligation for those who who, um, have a certain amount of wealth. They're supposed to give two and a half percent of their excess wealth to those in need. That's something which is meant uh, on a social level to return and restore justice to, you know, to people. In the sense of helping helping the, the those in need, uh, you know, uplift them and not keep them impoverished, and also keep those who are rich, uh, and, and wealthy, you know, keep them uh, in in good standing. In the sense of uh, purifying their wealth uh, from anything that might be uh, negative or you know evil, you know, spiritual contamination, if you will. It's it's the zakat is is, is looked at as a way of of restoring. And purifying people's wealth by giving some of it away, and then it helps us also to not be uh, attached so much to our wealth.
0: So uh, earlier, as you mentioned, uh, Muslims pray multiple times a day while facing Mecca. So, what role does prayer play in the lives of Muslims?
1: Prayer is (laughs) everything. Prayer is it is really the the identifying characteristic of, of quote-unquote muslim life or, or maybe observant life i mean, uh, you know, you, borrowing borrowing terms from maybe other faith traditions you know being observant and non-observant you know, praying five times a day I and mean, th- those prayers one those prayers are uh, done in a certain form there's a physical form there's you know prerequisites to, to wash ahead of time and as you said we have to face, face the direction of uh, the Kaaba in Mecca um, and then there's the physical standing and bowing and prostrating, uh, but then there are other forms of prayer as well. You know, they're similar to other faith traditions where we just we talk in our hearts. We're kind of just talking to God. You know, sometimes we pray out loud. We we make you know supplication supplications out loud, which don't require any sort of movement. Maybe we raise our hands. Uh, maybe similar to other faiths. Maybe we don't. Uh, but but prayer is really you know is meant to be our way of connecting to god and uh, the idea for, for us the idea that the five daily prayers would be a requirement is 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 a, you know one of god's ways of letting us know that we need we need that time with him <laughs> like we need that spiritual time to like disconnect from the world and turn our attention back to him so the, the the idea that he would require that of us it's it's meant to be you know his way of uh, you know pulling his servants you know uh, back to him and then we're the ones who benefit. We don't. We don't actually believe, from a theological perspective, that we can benefit God if we worship Him. He benefits, or you know, or if we disobey Him, we harm Him in some way. Or, you know, not, we don't believe anything like that. So, uh, the, all the benefit for prayer is, is for us. It's meant to help us remember what we've forgotten, and uh, which is the which is what we would call the ultimate truth. One of God's names in Arabic is Al-Haq, which is the truth, the ultimate truth uh of everything in existence and and himself uh, alone you know he is he is the cho- so our forgetting that is you know is is to our detriment to f- forgetting the creator is to our detriment so uh, we believe the first thing that muslims will be asked about on the day of judgment is how was our prayer were we consistent with the prayer you know and that will determine you know the hadith the the, the, the statement of the prophet peace be upon him was that you know if Essentially, if if you're, if you're, if a person can answer that question on the day of judgment, then then everything else will be okay. Everything will work itself out, so to speak. Like like any other ritual, it can sometimes you know be something which is is done with with without the heart's present uh, presence. You know, the heart is distracted, uh, the mind is distracted. And it's almost like just a physical ritual that you're doing, bowing, and so it, it does require a certain uh, focus and, and 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 awareness of of the moment, what you're doing, you know, who are you talking to, right? Who are, who are you communicating communicating with? Who are you praising? Who are you thanking? Um, so it does require that kind of effort on from the individual. You know, we start with this with this with this expression, which is one of the most you know misused expressions which is which is the expression allahu akbar and this is a very uh you know this, this expression has gotten a bad rap due to its use you know, you know with terrorism you know terrorists using this term when they when they do uh, terrorist attacks you know but we start the prayer saying allahu akbar and liter- which literally means god is the greatest or in another linguistic reading you could you could translate it if it had as a superlative as god is greater and you would usually say, God, you know, this this thing is greater than that thing, but it's like it's like we've cut off the rest of the sentence. God is greater than anything, and God is greater than everything. It's like God is the greatest, right? So, you know, some people have said, when we when we start our prayer, we actually raise our hands up like this, and some people say, well. It's almost as if you've you've taken the world and split it apart and just you throw it up over your shoulders and say god is greater than that you know you just you just kind of forget it it's like symbolic abandonment of the world to focus on god right even the physical forms the bowing and prostrating that has a special place for a lot of people you know a lot of people when they get older and they're not able to physically get down bend down and prostrate and they they wind up praying in in chairs they'll sit in a chair and pray and they really miss that Ability to sit to prostrate and, and bow down and it's like a really it's like they lost something special, you know that they had
0: I think you answered it very beautifully. Do you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today?
1: The first chapter of the Quran is is, uh, is Actually a, a prayer, you know, the first chapter is called al fatiha from the opening And it's called that for a couple of reasons one because it's an opening into the Quran itself the prayer itself is meant to pivot or supposed to give the reader a, a certain mindset in, in, in engaging in the Qur'an, even if they're not Muslim. I mean, you know, if, if we're being intellectually honest and, 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 and saying that we seek after truth, you know, we, we come to a religious text and we say, okay, if, if there's truth in here, let me see it. If there's truth in here, let me find it, right? So the, the, the first chapter of the Qur'an is very, uh, you know, is, is very significant to us. And that's actually what we read. One of the things we read in every prayer and in different, you know, multiple times in each prayer and it starts with Bismillah Rahman Rahim in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Alhamdulillah. All praise is due to Allah, the Lord of all the worlds, the, the Lord of everything. Al-Rahman Rahim it repeats the most gracious, the most merciful. Malikyum, the master of the day of judgment, the Lord of the Day of Judgment, the King of the Day of Judgment. You alone do we worship and you alone do we seek help from and here's where the the prayer comes in guide us uh, to the straight path and the, the scholars of the Quran have said all the things that you might put in the middle there are actually applicable you know guide us to the straight path that's applicable guide us by the straight path as it means back to you the the path of those who have not earned your anger or have not earned your your wrath and not of those who have gone astray so this is an acknowledgement of a couple things that that people people get lost and we don't want to be of those people and there are people who uh, don't get lost as much as they reject to to give you know human examples and and we don't like to compare god to, to to his creation in that sense but you know, if I were to tell you, if I were to give you directions, and then you were just to throw the directions out the window and go another another way, it's that. Well, it's disrespectful for me. Well, why why'd you ask me for directions? I give you directions, right? But um, it's also, you know, it's not that you that you got lost, so to speak, but that you rejected the directions, right? Um, it's it's a it's a, it's it's a bit of there's a some sort of arrogance involved, right? That you you had the directions and you just you you rejected them, right? So. Uh, you know, we, we acknowledge that that's the condition of a lot of humanity is that they, get, they, find, they find guidance and they reject it or they find faith and they reject it. And they find, or, the, or something happens to them that, that they lose themselves in this worldly existence, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And we pray that we're not of those, uh, but of, of people who not only find the path, find guidance, but remain on guidance until we meet our creator.
0: To learn more about what Muslims believe, visit www.icomd.org. There you can attend online courses and even a Quran summer camp. Imam Earl has his own YouTube channel where he discusses his faith and current events. You can find it at ICM Religious Director Chad Earl.